Welcome to the LSE, for those of you who are from outside of it, and for those of you who are from within, welcome too. Um, I'm Tony Travers from the Department of Government, uh, and I'm really here this evening to introduce our speaker and then to chair a discussion <coughs> afterwards. Um, the event, as you all know, which is why you're here, is to hear from Charles Moore, who is the editor of this, the um, second volume, and a sizable volume it is too, of the authorised biography of uh, Margaret Thatcher. I think it's fair to say that Margaret Thatcher uh, remains as powerful a figure in the public imagination in Britain as any politician post-war, possibly even for longer, and will be for some time to come. And therefore it's an excellent opportunity this evening to hear about the phenomenally important second period of the three that Charles Moore is writing about, about Mrs. Thatcher really at the zenith of her power, I think that's fair to say. Um, and uh, we will hear on another occasion, I hope, because we heard about the first volume uh, two years ago uh, from Charles Moore when he's uh, completed this uh, enormous task. Um, just before I say a couple of words about Charles's biography, um, I should say that there is a hashtag for Twitter users, as you can see here on the screen, hash LSE Thatcher. Now, uh, I'm going to say no more than uh, a few words about uh, our distinguished visitor this evening, partly because he'll be well-known to many of you. Um, Charles Moore is one of Britain's leading journalists. He joined the staff of the Daily Telegraph in 1979 and, as a political columnist in the 1980s, covered several years of Mrs Thatcher's first and second governments. He was editor of The Spectator from 1984 to 1990 and editor of The Sunday Telegraph from 1992 to 1995 and then editor of The Daily Telegraph from uh, 1995 to 2003. And, of course, he is still a regular columnist at The Telegraph and elsewhere. Um, as I said, the first volume of this extraordinary uh, biography of Margaret Thatcher was published in 2013 it was a prize-winning book. I'm sure this one will be. And perhaps all I can do now is ask Charles Moore to speak for a while. And when he's done that, we will have an opportunity, or you'll have an opportunity, to ask questions about Mrs. Thatcher and about the book. And then after that, there'll be an opportunity, should you so wish, to get a copy or to buy a copy of the book outside and to have the author signed it. So, ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, Charles Moore. Uh, thank you very much, Tony, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you kindly, um, in your kind introduction, you described me as the editor of this book. I'm actually the author of it. I, I, I should have yes. said the author, <laughs> not the editor. Um, too many editors, yeah. <laughs> too much editor in your past. Sorry about that. Um, uh, but uh, thank you. And uh, very nice to be here because, um, oddly enough, the very first talk I gave about this book uh, was here, in, in the, the same, not the same building, but the same um, occasion, the same group. Um, when it came out in uh, 2013, Volume 1. I'm going to talk to you about Volume 2 uh, tonight. Um, I just need to give you a very brief background to what this book really is, and it explains why it's so appallingly long and why there will be a third volume. Um, <laughs> but then I promise you there won't be a fourth volume. Uh, what happened was that uh, Mrs. Thatcher... Uh, like all prime ministers, when you leave office, you take with you a great deal of pers personal political papers from your period in office. It's always a disputed area about which you can take. Um, but uh, Winston Churchill famously took far more than he was entitled to so that he could write his memoirs. Um, and he said, um, history will be kind to me, and I know that because I shall write it. And, uh, and uh, having stolen a whole load of paper that wasn't really his from the government, uh, his fa he, um, it, he passed it on to his family, who then sold it back to the government um, about 30 years, 40 years later, um, to, via the lottery fund. Um, Mrs. Thatcher took paper, um, but she didn't have church. She wasn't a writer herself, and she didn't have Churchill's interest in that sort of thing. So she wasn't particularly excited about which paper she took, but she, she took it under the usual advice. And in 1997, she um, had decided that she must do something with it. She'd been out of office for seven years. Obviously, it's far too voluminous to keep in any imaginable house. Um, 
And as you know, she's a graduate of Oxford, and when she was uh, Prime Minister, Oxford refused her an honorary degree, and, uh, which hurt her very much. Dennis, her husband, told me it hurt her more than anything that happened, anything else that happened to her in office. And so she, um, when she came to deposit her paper, she gave them to Cambridge. And um, that's where they uh, reside in Churchill College, Cambridge, which is a good choice because it's a very good modern political archive. And when this happened, people said to her, somebody's going to write your life, so rather than just standing back from it, why don't you choose someone with whom you have a reasonable relationship and uh, get going, uh, let them get going, let them have access. And she did uh, very kindly choose me for reasons that I don't know, and I didn't apply for anything, it just, I just got the invitation from her. Um, and obviously, though it created certain difficulties, I, I felt it was an honour and opportunity which couldn't be um, denied, and so I uh, agreed to do it. And the terms were that um, I would be shown all these papers that I've described now at Churchill, have access to all of them, and I would have access to her and her family, and, to, to, and she would encourage everybody else who dealt with her to talk to me, uh, many of whom had never talked before because they'd been discouraged from speaking in the past. I'm speaking particularly here of civil servants, most notably her private secretaries, um, and all sorts of all sort of people who normally don't talk, like, let's say, for example, her detectives. Um, and um, she also gave me a letter that I could wave in front of world leaders and so forth, saying, please see this man. And by um, extension, she uh, went to the Cabinet Secretary and said, this is what's happening with Mr Moore. Could he, therefore, uh, see government paper before it's put into the public domain? And so I'm treated like, uh, and this was agreed, and I'm treated, therefore, like an official historian. I'm not an official historian, because an official historian means somebody who is paid and commissioned by the government, which I'm not. But I'm um, exempted the 30-year rule for the purposes of seeing uh, everything, which is now, as you probably know, a 20-year rule. Um, but the same point applies. And so it would be reasonable to say that I've been allowed to see virtually everything that you could see, which doesn't, of course, mean I have seen everything you could see, because if I saw everything I could see, I would be dead, if you sort of mean the amount of, uh, the amount of time, the amount of material is absolutely stunning. She was Prime Minister for the longest time of anyone in the era of universal franchise, and she was not an idle woman. So if you think of uh, what happened working 16 hours a day, seven days a week for 11 and a half years in, in office, um, it's pretty stupefying. Uh, and this explains why it's so long, because it, it's trying to set out for everybody uh, things that nobody really knew before. As Tony said, the first volume is um, about her birth uh, and, and youth and rise and goes right up from those beginnings to her first term as Prime Minister. And it ends with victory in the Falklands in 1982. So, and it's from that point that she uh, achieved her political zenith when it really became clear for the first time because her early grip on power had been precarious that she was there to stay and she dominated the political scene and it became virtually certain she would win the 83 election um, and as you know she then won the 87 election both with enormous majorities and I end the book therefore with um, the 87 victory and you, this is her period, her zenith as, as Tony said um, uh, and her period of uh, complete dominance but it's very important in understanding her and in doing history properly that you try to get into what it was like at the time. And it undoubtedly did not seem to her at the time that she was completely dominant, and it did, even less did it seem to her that she was completely secure. Uh, and one of the things she said immediately after winning this enormous victory in '83 to one of her private secretaries was, my colleagues will want me out by the next election, and I don't blame them. Um, and she was very, very conscious of this precariousness, uh, and it, it, she felt it many times in this period threatened, most notably most specifically in the Westland crisis. Um, what I want to convey... Well, it's difficult to convey all of this in a speech like this, so the way I'm going to do it is to um, fasten on one week, because it happens to, it's an interesting week, and it, it happens to bring in a lot of different themes which were very important in this period. And I think, by way of background, I need to say two things, I think. Uh, first of all... Uh, I've, well, I've picked a week in December 1984, and the three factors I think to bear in mind are, first of all, her huge parliamentary majority that I've mentioned that she had at that time. Secondly, the greatest domestic issue of that time was the miners' strike. She, the miners' strike had begun in March 1984, 
um, which is very stupid of Arthur Scargill because you shouldn't call a strike when the weather's getting warmer uh, because then people don't use so much coal. Um, and uh, it was still going on in December um, 84. Uh, and, of course, this was an absolutely consuming preoccupation of Mrs. Thatcher, uh, both because of its political danger and of its organisational problems, um, everything to do with, uh, above all, keeping the coal moving to power stations. Um, but it, it had legal ramifications, it had police ramifications, um, and public order ramifications, uh, and uh, uh, was always politically dangerous, though... Um, it's fair to say that by this time, December, it was clear that um, she was pretty likely to win because um, the, the key factor that tends to get glossed over in the mythology of the miners' strike is that, uh, and is that uh, Arthur Scargill never dared call a ballot of his members because he wasn't confident that they would vote for the strike. And the consequence of that was that the strike was widely regarded as illegitimate and, and about a third of the miners went on working throughout uh, uh, because they didn't like being made to go on strike and so they refused to do so and they became more than a third, more than a half eventually. Um, and so the coal kept on coming out of the ground and also um, the legal system and the police system worked controversially but it worked to get the stocks out so there weren't power cuts and so on. Um, still, at this time I'm talking about, she was very worried still about the miners' strike. And the other great factor to bear in mind was that she was by this time a, a global figure of the first importance. In October 1982, uh, Helmut Schmidt, who died two days ago, uh, uh, left office. And that, from that moment on, Mrs. Thatcher was the senior uh, leader of the Western world in terms of long service. So for the following eight years, she was the senior leader of the Western world. And everybody in the world who was interested in public affairs sort of wanted to beat a path to her door and meet her. And the most important aspect of this was, of course, everything to do with the Cold War and the confrontation with the Soviet Union. And Mrs. Thatcher's relationship with Ronald Reagan, who became president in January 81, uh, was a very, very strong factor in this because they were so close and they had such a common purpose uh, in relation to the Soviet Union. And that's the context to bear in mind. And what happened on the first uh, day of um, the week I'm talking about, which was the Sunday, was that Mrs. Thatcher gave lunch at Chequers, her country residence, to Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, now, you often read that when she did this, he was the Soviet leader. He wasn't, actually. One of the interesting things about this was that he was, he was yet to be the Soviet leader. But the Foreign Office and... Um, uh, her advisers and Mrs. Thatcher herself had sort of spotted Gorbachev as an interesting man from the new generation who was much more open, it seemed, uh, and that something was moving uh, in the undergrowth of the, what had become a very sclerotic system in the Soviet Union. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher, having prevailed with Reagan in, in the installation of the new generation of nuclear missiles in Europe earlier in the 1980s, was now keen to change the whole mood of Western Soviet relations, having wanted to be extremely tough in order to beat the Soviets back in terms of military power, she now wanted to use that power to bargain from strength and try and bring about what she ultimately wished, which was the um, introduction of, great, of much greater freedom in Eastern Europe and the end of the Cold War. And she was looking for an interlocutor, and hence the invitation to uh, Gorbachev. And he came, and in this book I've used lots of records that haven't been seen before about their conversation, and it is the most extraordinary conversation because it's the sort of conversation that you never, diplomats regard as a total disaster, and indeed um, diplomats use that they have a sort of code phrase for disastrous talks when they say they were frank, uh, which means incredibly rude. And um, these, were, uh, these, they, these talks were frank in that sense because they were a bit like Many of you students will have, have, the, have these arguments with one another. They're like two clever students. Um, Mrs. Thatcher saying, you know, it's much better in the West. We're free. We have fr freedom of speech and free markets and opportunity. And Gorbachev saying it's much better uh, in the Soviet Union. We have equality and um, security and uh, socialism. And um, people in, in the Soviet Union live joyfully, was the word he, he used when Mrs. Thatcher saw that in the minute of the thing, she wrote an exclamation mark beside the word joyfully. Um, uh, and so off they went, arguing and arguing. And um, 
it got very, really quite nasty because Mrs. Thatcher turned, she said, one of the awful things about communism is that you try to subvert um, relations between employer and employed and you do it in other countries such as ours and you're, you're doing it, for example, in the miners' strike. And she said, and Gorbachev said, no, we aren't. And Gorbachev, uh, then she said, and you are secretly paying Arthur Scargill um, to prolong the strike. And she said this because she knew it to be true, uh, because uh, MI6 had found the relevant documentation um, uh, and the links. Uh, and Gorbachev um, said, um, no, no, we, we're not, we don't do that. And he had with him his ambassador, Zamyatin, uh, and he looked at Zamyatin, and obviously Zamyatin gave him a funny look back, because then Gorbachev said, well, uh, not so far as I know, anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but, but actually, um, actually uh, Gorbachev had um, himself signed off uh, a $1.2 million payment to Arthur Scargill, um, uh, which it's never clear whether it ever reached its destination because it was terrifically difficult to, because the NUM accounts were frozen because of lots of legal disputes. It's not clear whether it actually reached Scargill or not, but the Soviet Union was certainly trying to, to get it there. At this point, um, Mrs. Gorbachev, who was in the room, and therefore Dennis Thatcher was on, on the other side and also in the room, Mrs. Gorbachev um, sort of mouthed to um, uh, Gorbachev, uh, it's over in Russian, obviously, so Mrs. Thatcher couldn't understand it, meaning we're going to have to go. This is hopeless. Um, and uh, Mrs. Thatcher perhaps sensed something of this without knowing any Russian, uh, and she switched the conversation, and she um, uh, became, it became politer, and she wanted to turn to the whole subject of missiles and how they could be um, reduced on both sides. And she was actually doing something quite bold for another reason, which was that she did not, in fact, really agree with President Reagan on one very, very, very important point, which was that um, Reagan thought that nuclear weapons were wicked, full stop, and that, therefore, you, could, you must try to rid the world of them. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher thought, yes, they're wicked, but they exist. And if you're, so your enemy, enemy will have them, so you've got to keep them. So she believed in deterrent theory. And what Reagan was trying to do was to construct what he called the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was a piece of new technology, sometimes known as Star Wars, which um, would erect a missile shield in space, which would mean that Soviet uh, nuclear missiles would be uh, interdicted. Uh, and don't ask me about the technology, but uh, so that they would not be able to hit their targets, and therefore the whole nuclear threat would be nullified. The Western European allies, including Britain, Mrs. Thatcher, were terrified by this because um, they thought this would, make, this would decouple America from Europe and would leave the Soviets with a massive conventional weapon superiority, which would allow them to subvert Western Europe and indeed possibly even to invade it. And so um, this was the big disagreement. And Mrs. Thatcher thought, there was, she could see there was a good thing about SDI, uh, about this missile shield, which was that the Soviets would eventually be defeated by it because they could not match the technology. But she was terrified of this decoupling point. And so she sort of said this to Gorbachev. She said, um, President Reagan has a, a dream. And in my, in my opinion, my Margaret Thatcher's opinion, it, it is a dream, not a reality, that this could happen. But he's going to develop it, and we need to work out how to do it. So she was sort of saying, let me help you, Mr. Gorbachev, to um, try and see if we can sort of get through this. And he was very receptive to that because he couldn't get to Reagan. And he considered rightly that Mrs. Thatcher was the main interlocutor with Reagan and the main influence. And so a sort of the basis of some sort of future discussion was laid. And they were both very excited by this meeting. It went on for seven hours, two hours longer than expected. And, um, when she, and she famously said afterwards, he's a man I can do business with. And she also said, um, uh, I'm, um, she, she sort of skipped with excitement, and she said... Um, oh, my goodness, um, tomorrow's China, and I haven't had my hair done. Because she had to go to China the following day, um, and she didn't have much time, and it was very important for her being the first woman leader in the democratic world. She cared very much about her appearance, which she considered, I think, rightly, as very important in the impact it had on people on television and in person, and very careful about her hair. And um, so uh, she had to do that the following day. We're now on the Monday... And she had to fly to Peking, as it was then known, Beijing. Um, however, before she did that, another thing happened. And I'm just illustrating all these things because it shows the variety of things that she did.
did. Prince Bandar bin Sultan came to see her, Prince of Saudi Arabia. He was the ambassador in Washington for Saudi Arabia. And he was concerned because Britain was trying to get an enormous contract to sell aircraft, to fighter aircraft, to tornadoes, to Saudi. And Prince Bandar, who was very pro-British and had been educated at RAF Cranwell, uh, knew that President Mitterrand was trying to steal for France this contract from under the British noses, and he wanted to prevent it. And so he came to talk to Mrs. Thatcher about all of this, and he presented her in a very sort of Saudi way with um, a very expensive model of a bulldog to illustrate his uh, praise for her courage, um, which had sapphire eyes. Um, doesn't sound very beautiful, but she thought it was lovely. And... Um, uh, and, and he warned her of all of this, and they talked about what to do about it, and then he left. And Mrs. Thatcher said to the head of defence sales who was there, what a lovely present, marvellous. And um, the head of defence sales said, well, I'm afraid, um, uh, Prime Minister, that the, the uh, bulldog, the type of bulldog he has represented here is a French bulldog, and, um, <laughs> which is an which is identifiable breed. And um, she said, well, if he buys my aeroplanes, I don't care where he gets his bulldogs. And, um, and from this, this meeting came uh, a sort of huge charm offensive by Mrs. Thatcher with the Saudi government, and particularly with the king, King Fahd. And because things are very much done in that sort of personal way in that uh, environment, in that country, in that uh, culture, she had a huge effect because King Fahd had a, considered Mrs. Thatcher one of the most beautiful women he'd ever met, and he was constantly trying to meet her. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And he also had, and Prince Bandar um, sort of understood this and understood how King Fahd admired what Mrs. Thatcher was doing. So he said, he was trying to persuade uh, the king, whether it was French Mirage or British Tornadoes. And he said, well, they're both, they're both good planes, but the question is, Your Majesty, who do you trust, Mitterrand or Mrs. Thatcher? And um, the king said, well, put like that, it, it's clear that the argument is settled, it's Mrs. Thatcher. And in um, April of the following year, he invited her to... Riyadh, and he said, the deal is yours. Uh, and the very controversial Ali Amama deal, controversial because of corruption accusa- accusations that went on for many years, um, was worth £42 billion pounds, uh, to Britain at that time, which I suppose that's, what, £200 billion now, something like that, which makes it by far the biggest defence contract ever undertaken by Britain. So again, an example of Mrs. Thatcher's sort of personal influence on events. After the bulldog and all that, she then went to uh, China, and um, arrived and went to see uh, Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of China. Uh, And what she was doing there was signing the um, uh, Anglo-Chinese agreement about Hong Kong. The lease of the colony of Hong Kong was going to fall in in 1997. The Chinese were demanding it back. They always considered it theirs. Mrs. Thatcher was extremely worried about this because she thought the whole free system of Hong Kong that the British had instituted and protected would collapse and that communism would take over. The Chinese said they didn't want that to happen, but they didn't quite know how to uh, implement it without threatening the control that they wanted. And Mrs. Thatcher was fighting very hard to get maximum freedom for Hong Kong people in this situation, and to some extent disagreeing with her own foreign office, who were more pro-Peking, about how this should be done. However, uh, this was agreed, and she went to see Deng. Deng was a very old man by then, uh, but still very alert. He had a massive old-fashioned ear trumpet sticking out, um, which she had to sort of shout down, and then the interpreter had to. And um, also, he did a thing which Chinese men of that generation do, did, which was to spit a lot. Um, and he, uh, so Mrs. Thatcher hated this, because there was Deng on one gold chair and Mrs. Thatcher on another girl chair, and the spittoon in the middle. And so the, it was coming uh, from time to time. And um, Mrs. Thatcher would sort of put her legs sideways with, with horror at, the, at, at, at this. Um, but in fact, the conversation was productive, nevertheless. They'd met before, and it had been very difficult uh, two years earlier, but now the whole thing was settled. And interestingly, and it shows her sort of salience um, at that point, Deng said to her, what is Gorbachev like? because she'd met him and he hadn't. So the, the, the leader of the most populous China, uh, communist country in the world was asking a free world leader what the next leader of the other important communist country was. She flew on to Hong Kong to sell the agreement to Hong Kong people, uh, which probably only she could have done successfully because they didn't trust the Foreign Office, but she, because she'd shown a constant interest in um, uh, Hong Kong people's 
view of the world and their rights. Um, she just about pulled it off, and people were very worried, but his confidence was sustained. And the, the agreement, which known by the slogan of one country, two systems, preserving capitalist system in Hong Kong and a legal, British legal system in Hong Kong, um, still more or less survives even to, even to this day. From uh, Hong Kong, she flew to Camp David, President Reagan's, or rather to Washington, in order to see uh, President Reagan in Camp David. And she'd invited herself on this expedition. Um, And when the message came uh, from her saying, please, could I come and see you? I've seen the memos from inside the White House which say, "Um, you shouldn't see her, Mr. President. We'd be much too nice to her. Um, That's enough of her. Um, uh, This is family time for for you. And Reagan said, she is family, I want to see her. So um, the, uh, the administration had to back off and off she went. And of course, very long flight. And she flew from Hong Kong and she flew via Honolulu and stopped in Honolulu in the early hours of the morning. And onto the plane came the top brass of the um, American uh, Air Force and Navy and so on to greet her. Um, and she said, I'm so pleased to be here and I'm so sorry that we may not be able to see Pearl Harbor because I've never seen Pearl Harbor the scene of course Pearl Harbor of the uh, Japanese attack on the US Navy which precipitated which President Roosevelt called a day that will live in infamy um, uh, uh, which uh, got United States into the Second World War and she said I haven't seen Pearl Harbor and the US commander said actually Pearl Harbor is very close to this airstrip but you have to drive right round to get to it. So I don't think we can do that. And Mrs. Thatcher said, um, oh, well, if, if it's very close, why don't we walk? Uh, why don't we just walk across the t- tarmac and get to it? And they said, yes, but it's dark. And she said, well, I've got a torch in my bag. <laughs> and um, the, 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 the reason for this is, was true that she did. It's quite interesting why, because... Uh, this was because of the Brighton bomb, which the IRA tried to kill her two months earlier. Uh, Irish Republican Army, the uh, Republican terrorists. And as you know, they successfully killed, I think, five people and gravely wounded many others. Um, They didn't injure her physically at all, um, but it was a close-run thing. And Mrs. Thatcher was very worried ever afterwards because when a bomb goes off, the lights go off, uh, or they're likely to, because everything's smashed up. And so from then on, she always had a torch in her bag wherever she went. Um, and so uh, she did have one. And so off they went, um, the torch, the bag, um, and Mrs. Thatcher uh, with the U.S. commanders. And they walked across uh, the airstrip and admired Pearl Harbor in the dawn, just as the light was breaking, and got back on the plane. And, of course, very clever propaganda by Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, she genuinely wanted to see Pearl Harbor, but she knew how much it would impress the Americans that she cared about that um, and it's such an uh, important place in their history. And she flew to... Uh, now we, we've now got to Friday. And she flew and arrived in Washington on the um, uh, uh, 11 o'clock at night and went to the British Embassy and called all the officials together to discuss the summit the following day, Camp David. Then she went to bed, and then she got up and at 6 o'clock had her hair done um, for the encounter because she would have them... She tr- had to have it done particularly often on, uh, when travelling. Nowadays, uh, probably even male prime ministers travel with hairdressers, um, and certainly um, prime ministers' spouses uh, travel with hairdressers. I once had a surreal time getting, coming out of Bagram Airport in um, Afghanistan in 2001. With, on, I got on the Blair's plane, and Mrs. Blair had brought two hairdressers from London uh, who were working on her while I was talking to Mr. Blair. But the, um, in those, Mrs. Thatcher thought it was very extravagant to take a hairdresser with you, so she got the local guy, um, and he came in at six in the morning, did her, and then she was preparing for the summit. And then an illustration of yet another thing that was going on in her life that was very important. She, um, before she went to talk about these great issues of foreign policy, she prepared on another subject, which was the privatisation of British airways. And the reason for this was that um, she was trying to privatise British Airways, but British Airways was subject to a whole series of suits, and indeed uh, not only civil suits, but a criminal investigation from the US Justice Department because of conspiring with American airlines to crush a British independent airline called Laker Airlines. And she knew that you couldn't privatise British Airways. Nobody will buy 
a company if it's the subject of unsettled uh, billion-dollar suits. Um, so she wanted to persuade President Reagan to drop all of this. And so she flew to Camp David, and in amidst the bigger discussion of global affairs, she kept on about this. And you can tell her incredible mad persistence from the minutes, because they say things like, noting that she'd already discussed this matter, Mrs. Thatcher returned to the subject of British Airways. And you can see it's all going on and on, and the poor Reagan and George Shultz things all wanting lunch. And, um, uh, but she wouldn't let it drop. And um, on that particular occasion, she didn't um, prevail, but the, the, the seed was planted in the president's mind, and within two or three months, unprecedentedly, I think almost, I think it only happened once before, the president in history, the president then intervened to stop the Justice Department pursuing the matter, which, of course, is almost unconstitutional because it's, a, it's the president acting uh, to interfere with the process of law. But he did this, and he also encouraged the dropping of the civil suits. Uh, and, in fact, the whole thing was... Com- the cold coast was completely cleared for her uh, so that the, British- the privatisation of British Airways could succeed. But the main thing that they were discussing was, of course, SDI, Star Wars, and Gorbachev. Uh, and on the first point, SDI, uh, she did the thing you have to do if you want to get a good result out of these meetings, which is to draft the communique. She, she got the British officials to draft the communique to say what had been agreed, uh, and the American officials therefore sort of came in behind to agree with it. Four points, of which the key one was that SDI research could go ahead unilaterally, but deployment could not. And that was the key concession by President Reagan. He would not deploy SDI without negotiation, without agreement with the Allies and negotiation with the Soviets, and, um, and throwing it into the negotiation. This was an absolutely key concession because it consolidated the alliance, Western alliance about this, and it made the Soviet Union less uh, paranoid. Uh, and she also said to Reagan, I've met Gorbachev. He's a man I can do business with, um, we need to move the whole of the world on on this matter of missiles. We need to engage with talks. Um, you are the leader of the free world. I can't do this alone. Um, you, you've got to do this, uh, and you should meet this man. Um, and, and Reagan basically accepted that analysis, which was very controversial within the U.S. administration. And Mrs. Thatcher knew that her personal friendship with Reagan tended to prevail in these matters because it helped to sort out the feuds that were always existing between the Pentagon and the State Department and so on. And so she came away with these two great prizes from, and she got back on the plane. And you can see in this book how happy she was on the plane home because suddenly she looks all playful and relaxed, which is not usual with her. And um, you see there's a picture of her pulling a cracker with Bernard Ingham, her press secretary, Christmas cracker, and then sort of wearing, I think, I can't quite see it, but I think it's a sort of probably a hat that came out of the cracker at the back of her head and putting her spectacles down on the end of her nose and sort of clowning for the cameras with the journalists on the plane, which, again, uh, is very, very untypical. Um, and so... She felt very, very happy, and she got, she got home for Christmas, and that's uh, six days in the life of Margaret Thatcher. Thank you. Is it easier to stay or, or go? Come here. Okay. That's yep. okay. The microphones will work. Lovely. Okay, as you walk across, Charles, perhaps I can just start with my own question. You you talk in the book about the early period in the the thinking through of the process of starting the poll tax, the community charge, and I realise the denouement comes in the final volume. But as somebody who once did some research on on the poll tax, um, what always struck me about it, it was not that it was a daft idea so much as that Mrs. Thatcher's instincts, which were so good, Mm. and she was convinced of this. It wasn't something, as you say in the book, she didn't come up with the idea herself. It wasn't an ideological decision. It was something that ministers and civil servants worked on very hard, came up with the policy, she accepted it, and then, in a way she often did with things, became very loyal to it once it had been agreed. All of that I can understand. What I never fully understood was why a politician who had such good instincts managed to come up with supporting a tax which in the end was going to harm the very people who more than any other, any others that she 
appealed to and wanted to help, i.e. people who are just on, just on sort of average or just below average earnings living in smallish homes, many of them bought under the right to buy. And I just wonder where, why her in, if you've got any clues to why yes. her instincts failed on this occasion. Well, thank you. I was a bit dreading this question because, of course, Tony knows more about this subject, much more than I do and more than anyone else alive. So, um, uh, um, but here we are. I've got to, got to try and answer. Not her instincts. I don't know. <laughs> um, first of all, I think, as always with history, you have to understand why something was seen in a particular way at a particular time. And what she had to deal with was the fact that the rates, the existing form of local government tax, was so fantastically unpopular with her supporters. So she was committed over many years to changing, getting rid of the rates, and this was a very popular cause. And it was also to do with the fact that the Labour count- there was sort of power without responsibility in left-wing Labour councils. And they were very powerful in some areas. And, for example, the GLC um, run by Kevin, Ken Livingston, Greater London Council, run by Kevin Livingston at that time, financial advice, financial guy, director, was um, uh, John McDonnell, now suddenly shot to <laughs> prominence, um, a shadow chancellor. Um, and, uh, and Liverpool Council and so on, um, all trying to use local government as she saw it, and not without reason, as a sort of subversion of the whole system, and particularly a financial subversion of the whole System. So she, that's what she wanted to do. And she sought ways of doing it which were, as you say, not irrational and were not whimsical. I mean, they were, went through and through and through. But the key, one key error at least, was that the Treasury uh, were not really involved. Mm. Because Nigel Lawson, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, could see why it wasn't going to work. And he wrote a famous and damning and brilliant memo about why it wasn't going to work and then essentially withdrew from the pitch and would have nothing to do with it. And though local, local taxes are not for the Treasury, strictly speaking, you can't really have a massive tax change in this country if the Treasury is not playing. And um, that's what happened. Um, and so there was a sort of massive problem of process. But the other thing, I think she was seduced by the idea that the beautiful idea that this was taxation with representation. Because if you had the poll tax... Everybody would pay something, and that would mean that responsible, independent local government would come into existence because people would be voting for... um, uh, They would want to vote for a a, a council that they could control because otherwise they'd have to pay more, which under the old system of rate support grants didn't apply. Um, And it looked beautiful and logical, uh, but it wasn't because what what it omitted was the simple point that when people have to pay a tax and they haven't had to pay it before, they hate it, uh, and there were many, many millions to whom this applied. Um, there were many other factors, but I think perhaps Mrs. Thatcher was too powerful at that point so that it was difficult to, for her usual instincts to reign in. And in particular, the key meeting uh, where the poll tax was decided to push ahead with in principle was only about a month after victory in the miners' strike. And that's who was going to say her nay at that point. Okay, very good. Um, still intrigues me, and it always will. Excuse me, is it possible for the volume to... Oh, sorry, oh, perhaps sorry, I'm... Shall I go a bit close? Can you hear us now? Okay, all right, can you hear us now? Sorry about that. Okay, right. Um, any questions? Right, can you get the microphone to the speaker here, This, and then one here, and say who you are if you'd like to. Take two or three, just to speed it all up. I'm just a humble A-level politics teacher. I greatly enjoyed the first volume uh, about Mrs. Thatcher. Um, Does the second volume deal in any detail with various things that I've read that Mrs. Thatcher exacerbated the confrontation between the police and the miners during the miners' strike by, for example, um, suggesting or ordering effectively police... uh, from the south of England to go up to the north where there wasn't perhaps a rapport with the northern miners? Um, or is there no basis for saying that she interfered at all regarding the police operation um, with the miners? Do you want to do that one first, or shall I take a couple more? You tell me which one to see. You can probably do that one quite right. quickly. Um, she didn't do that because she didn't get involved in individual operations like that. But what she had done in advance, which was very important, was create, uh, I forget, uh, sorry, I can't remember what it was called, but something like the National Information Centre for the Police, uh, which was, I think, in Nottingham. And what that meant was that for the first time, the different police forces were coordinated. And there was a lot of 
controversy about that because is that in effect the creation of a national police force? So, police, that's, so at any one time they could work out where the trouble was coming from and get in support. And this was a key thing from the point of view of trying to win the miners' strike uh, because otherwise there wouldn't be enough strength to resist massive pickets in particular areas. Okay, and the gentleman here. <coughs> no, my name's Ian Orr. I'm a retired member of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I was particularly interested in your remarks on the personal relationship with Ronald Reagan. That obviously produced huge benefits in terms of changing US policy. Do you have views on how much he was upset when Reagan uh, invaded Grenada, a yeah. former British uh, 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 Commonwealth country, uh, mm. without any advance warning to the UK. Queen wasn't so happy either, yes. as I remember it. Um, Grenada, Caribbean island, which had been taken over by a Marxist coup, and Reagan ordered the United States to invade Grenada to, to um, overthrow the coup, and in doing so misled Mrs. Thatcher um, about this, uh, knowing that she would be opposed to it. And yes, she was very, very upset about it, um, and I think I established in this book that she li uh, he lied to her about it, that he deliberately misled her because he knew that um, she would be. And there's a brilliant... You can he actually hear the telephone call when he apologises to her afterwards. I got it released, and it's marvellous because it's, it's the whole thing's like a 1940s film. And, and, and he's saying... Um, uh, he's, he's sort of... In that little light voice, you know, Margaret, if I were there, I guess I'd throw my hat through the door. Um, and um, she says, um, that won't be necessary. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and, uh, and so it goes on, and he's saying that he's very sorry, um, and she's, she's really like the jilted girl in one of those films, you know, the two-timed girl, very cold. Uh, and eventually she says, I must go now, I have to do a debate in the House of Commons. And, um, and, and he says... Go on, go and get them, eat them alive. And, um, and she says, thank you for calling. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's simply marvellous to hear it. You, we, you can actually hear it. It's terrific. Um. Very good. Uh, take, there's a lady at the back. It's in red, well, halfway up in the red. Um, want a way of describing you? Uh, my name is Sun Yang Chiaman. I am an ex-student of politics. I'm intrigued by the subtitle of your biography, Everything She Wants. Did you choose it or was it chosen by the um, publisher? And can you explain why? Yes, thank you. Um, well, obviously, I chose it in the sense that um, I um, uh, would only allow my book to be called what I wanted it to be called. But it would be lying if I said that I'd thought of it because it comes from uh, a song by Wham of the time, and I'd never heard the song in my life. Um, uh, but somebody suggested it to me, uh, and a very good suggestion it was, partly because it does come out of that period, and also because this is the, um, this is the period, as I say, of her dominance. So she was in a position much more nearly than any modern prime minister, on of her, and, and indeed of herself previously, to get everything she wanted. However, there's a certain irony in the title, because, of course... Uh, she didn't get everything that she wanted um, by any means, as no Prime Minister can or should. And, um, and indeed, as we all know, you should be careful what you wish for. So um, I try to convey this sense of her dominance. And I always like a word in the title of these books um, which uh, conveys something about her sex, because I think the fact she was the one and only woman is very important. So the first one is called Not for Turning, as in the ladies not for turning. Um, and uh, this is called Everything uh, She Wants. The she is important. And the third volume will be called Herself Alone. And again, I think that tells you something about her particular position. And well done, Wham. <laughs> I'm not expected to hear reference this evening, I can tell you. The chap here. And then back there. Oh, was two of you there. Well, let's take this two together. Come on, let's take two this time. Okay, so there's a microphone at the back for the other shout. questioner. Oh, can you shout? Okay. Go on. Um, I'm Adrian, student at the LSE. I have a question concerning the Hong Kong uh, retrocession. What was your personal belief uh, of Margaret Thatcher on that question? On Hong Kong? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, do you want to take the other gentleman as well? It's quite a generic question. Just wondering, as somebody who's known to be quite positive about her, and just wondering, was there anything that you came across in here that you found quite unpleasant or objectionable about her? Yes. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, um, on the second point first, I think um, Mrs. Thatcher was a very difficult woman, um, and if you look at her relations with people, she had very good relations with people who worked for her. She, was extremely, she had no sense of uh, pomposity or hierarchy, so she was very, very kind to everybody who worked for her, but she was immensely disagreeable to her cabinet colleagues. Uh, and so all her secretaries, drivers, private secretaries and things loved her. Um, but um, she was very jealous of her position, and she was terrified of the attack by people who wanted her job, Geoffrey Howe, and gradually fell out, therefore, over time with almost all the important ones in this volume, Geoffrey Howe, to some extent Nigel Lawson, and to some extent Norman Tebbit. Um, and when this sort of mood was on her, she was very, very difficult, because she'd been fantastically rude um, and, and dressed down people in front of other people so that they were humiliated. Um, and there was that was a pretty terrifying thing and an unpleasant thing. Um, However, I think she was fundamentally more kind than unkind, um, and I think she dealt straight with people, for the most part, um, and um, that she was a genuine person. There wasn't a sort of um, bogus uh, quality about her. There was a sort of artificiality about her, about her manner and things like that, but there was a, there was a sort of core integrity there. So uh, I wouldn't say she was wholly likable, but I would say that she was impressive. Um, on the um, Hong Kong um, point, she did consider, particularly after victory in the Falklands, gosh, maybe I don't have to give these back to these wretched communists. That was in her head. And she really pushed for that. And the Foreign Office advised her, and I think they were right, that she was, this was impossible. Um, you see, technically, um, she could have... Uh, uh, um, Britain claimed permanent possession of Hong Kong Island and Kowloon, whereas the new territories were only on lease. So technically, Britain could have maintained in international law Kowloon and Hong Kong Island. But in fact, that would have been impossible because of water supply and things like that. And it also would have been politically impossible because you would have had what Dennis Thatcher called one and a half billion of the buggers, was his phrase about uh, the Chinese, um, uh, 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 gearing up against tiny Hong Kong and tiny Britain, and it simply couldn't be done. What she did, however, was try to... She wanted to do, and to some extent succeeded, was to maximise Hong Kong's position and to make China feel it was very important that um, they couldn't just go trampling all over it. And uh, and to be fair to the Foreign Office, they were very keen on that point as well, and Geoffrey Howe and she worked successfully with different emphases on this, uh, and it did sort of just about work. Okay, there's one here. And then one back there. It's uh, Hugh Edwards. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'd like to ask you about the another question about the miners' strike. Um, I've read and heard um, people speak about it, academics who've looked in the archives um, that have become available. And Mrs. Thatcher was a I suspect a very ruthless woman, person, and the. I suspect that, with the power of the NUM, as it was in 1979, she could never sleep soundly in her bed, electorally, because the, there was always the threat of a huge minor strike. It had destroyed Ted Heath, mm-hmm. and the the. the there was a threat of a miners' strike, but 1981, something like that, and the miners were bought off. Yeah. But the decision, the ruthless decision was made that the NUM had to be destroyed for political reasons. And people who said there was done this research said the, it cost £25 billion for the whole exercise to happen. And it actually cost more money to close the coal industry down than, than, than it would have been too large to continue. 
That's okay. what they say. All right, that's, that's the clear question. And hold that one and the chap at the back there as well. Hello, good evening. Could you please tell us a bit about Margaret, with the, the shaping of Margaret Thatcher's thinking on Europe, and in particular in the run-up to the Bruges speech, and if she had a, uh, an advice, a piece of advice to give today to David Cameron, what would it be? <laughs> First of all, on the, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about Mrs. Thatcher as a ruthless um, operator, but I think it's wrong to think that um, she sought the battle uh, because she knew that what a dangerous battle it was. What she decided, and you rightly mentioned the 1981 uh, capitulation to the miners, what she decided was she had to be ready because she believed the strike would come. And the reason she believed the strike would come is because Arthur Scargill, who was a communist, had taken over um, the miners' union and therefore was... And actually, this made it very easy for her, sort of morally and politically, because Scargill explicitly said, I want to bring down, in public, I want to bring down the elected government. So she knew that she simply had to win. It was a binary situation. Um, and uh, win or lose, that was the only, there was no intermediate. Whereas if it had been Joe Gormley, the previous uh, leader, a much respected moderate, it would have been very hard for her to have this battle. So she was absolutely determined to be ready, to be, have the, the coal stocks, the, uh, the police and the legal framework, and she was ready uh, by then. And once it started, it had to finish, um, and it had to finish with her victory. Um, and I couldn't give you an estimation of the costs, um, and I'm sure they could be argued all sorts of different ways. It certainly was extremely costly, um, but I don't think uh, she had any choice about that. And she was extremely lucky in her enemies, as has been said by others, General Galtieri in the Falklands, um, Arthur Scargill, because if you are an unreasonable enemy, you give a, play, give a massive advantage to, to your opponent. And she, she faced uh, an unreasonable enemy. Um, and I think that, uh, interestingly, her party who was so against her in many ways, her senior colleagues on so many issues, was not on this issue because they could see that there really was no choice. Um, and uh, if you think what it ha would have happened if Scargill had won, you can see why she had to do uh, what she did. She really, she really did have no choice. Um, sorry, Europe. Um, the Bruges speech comes after the period I'm talking about, but obviously she's uh, in this volume, but she's running up to it. Mrs. Thatcher started off pro-European, but I would say never wildly pro-European. And she got more and more irritated by um, the European system, and she hated the way they ran. She hated the fact it's a bureaucracy rather than a democracy, and she hated the fact that all the decisions by the leaders were made in these European councils sitting around having dinner, which she thought was most unprofessional and... Uh, that they didn't know what they were talking about because she was always better informed about the facts. And um, in this book, Fontainebleau Summit of July 84, ended the five-year row about British bu budgetary contribution. And she saw all these foreign ministers sitting around in an inn in the forest of Fontainebleau when they're supposed to be talking. And she said, look at them all. Um, we saved all their necks in the war. And that was her attitude to... Um, uh, <laughs> that um, there were all these men who were... Well, as she, put, she used to use the word anecdoting, always anecdoting, self-congratulatory stories about how clever they were and uh, not actually deciding things properly. She then went into the period of the, having prevailed on that one of the single European Act, which created a much more stronger single market, but which she came to regret because she felt she conceded sovereignty powers in the process. And increasingly she felt cheated by Helmut Kohl and Francois Mitterrand, who sort of double-crossed her in order to push forward to what later became the single currency. And so she was getting very angry. And essentially, she never bought into the European idea. There's a famous picture, some of you may remember, of the field of the Battle of Verdun. Helmut Kohl and um, François Mitterrand held hands to symbolize reconciliation between France and Germany uh, instead of the conflict, the previous conflicts. And a friend of mine said to Mrs. Thatcher shortly after this, wasn't that very moving to see that? She said, no, it was not. Two grown men holding hands. <laughs> and um, uh, she, uh, she did not like this power of um, France and Germany. And the problem she got into was that though her analysis of many of the European ills was very perceptive, she never really established a proper policy about this. So what you had, the, the government, British government policy did not change. So, for example, an entry to the ERM... Uh, continued to be British policy that we would enter when the time is right. 
But Mrs. Thatcher actually thought the time would never be right. And so she, and this is described in the book, had this huge argument within the uh, senior ministers, particularly with Nigel Lawson, in November 85, when um, she had this big rap... Essentially, she was isolated within her own government on the point. And so all the time, from 1985 or so onwards until the end, perhaps fatally, she was isolated from her own government on European policy. And the, the Bruges speech was an attempt to sort of break out of that and give a big vision for the future of Europe. And actually, it reads very well because it's not a sort of jingoistic speech. What it's about, it's about we must see the whole of European civilization together. And in particular, she says, Prague, Budapest, um, and Warsaw are just as much European cities as Paris and London. And saying that, of course, in the context of the Cold War. So she was trying to get the whole of Europe to see itself as big Europe, not just little EC. And any any implications for Mr. Cameron? Ah, well, um, I never do the hypothetical about Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, because I don't know. But, uh, you know my only selling point is I, I know something about what she did do. I can't speculate on what she might have done. Fair point. Now, we're running up to half past seven. There's a, one question here very briefly. We will have to stop, I'm afraid. Hi, uh, Michael Climes. Uh, thanks for the talk. Um, Professor Travers was saying at the start that uh, we've been talking a lot about Margaret Thatcher. I'll be talking about Margaret Thatcher for a very long time. Do you think that there will ever be a change in circumstances where... Perhaps we'll go to the opposite, where we won't talk so much about Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and what do you think would lead to that sort of change in circumstances? Because she always provokes either love, hate, and all of these. Everyone has an opinion. But do you, might she lose that, if, that curiosity about her one day? I think that's a very interesting question. But I think it does something which is natural to do, um, but which we shouldn't do, which is only look at her in a British way. I talk about her all over the world. And... Nowhere except in Britain is there large hostility to her. Um, there's obviously a lot of people who don't agree with her, but um, there's a huge recognition of her basic historical importance across the world, particularly in the Far East, the United States, and Eastern Europe, but actually everywhere, um, uh, which is to do with, first of all, her sort of set of doctrines, if you like, Thatcherism. Secondly, her sort of leadership qualities. Um, uh, thirdly, the fact that she, her sex, and the fact that she was the woman leader, and how that changed everything, um, uh, and quite a lot more besides. So um, I, I think it, it's quite hard to imagine people forgetting about it and sort of just talking about something else. Um, and also there's a sort of mythical quality about her, both for good and ill in people's minds, which is very powerful, and it's to do with being the only woman to a large extent, but also to her particular uh, personality. And so this is the subject of sort of, as it were, legend, and I have a whole chapter on the legend of Margaret Thatcher in this book, both the hostile and the pro people, how they, make, they draw sort of cartoons, stained glass windows, plays, films, um, mm. uh, everything, uh, puppets. Um, uh, sort of everybody knows something, has some sense of what she's like, and it's hard to imagine that disappearing. And she did, after all, like Tony Blair, she was an incredibly successful election-winning yes. prime minister. I know I don't need to tell you this, but, I mean, in terms of election-winning, uh, she and he were both remarkable, particularly as by the time each of them became prime minister, the two-party dominance was in decline. I mean, as it, it's gone yes. further still. So her election-winning... Absolutely, terribly important. Very, are, yes, and, uh, yes, absolutely, so important, that, and... I met her shortly after she left office and she was just starting to write her memoirs. And I said, what are you going to call them? And she said, undefeated. And, um, and uh, the, 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 um, the reason for that was that it was true because she'd won every single election that she'd ever taken part in, including the leadership election which forced her to resign. People forget that. But she got more votes than Michael Heseltine, but not enough to prevent the second ballot. So in her mind and it was factually correct, she had never been defeated, and yet she'd been thrown out. It's a very hard thing to accept, but it goes to the point you're making. Okay, look, we could go on for a long time, and indeed you will have an opportunity for the next 20 minutes, uh, so to do, with the author uh, outside. So what I'm going to do is first to... um, Well, let's do it this way around. I think for efficiency's sake, if you could just hold back uh, when... Charles and I get up so we can get out to the door in order that you can, he can be at the desk to sign the books if you want to get the books signed. Um, 
I do sound as if I got shares in the company, really, didn't I, here? But anyway, um, which I don't, uh, for the avoidance of doubt. Uh, but before that, I'd just like to thank all of you for your questions, and particularly Charles Moore for his uh, elegant and amusing and definitively detailed description of the second of the his three parts of Margaret Thatcher's biography. Thank you very much. <laughs>